Chapter 1 January 25th, 2013 11 o'clock a.m. In her living room, T took the newly printed t-shirts out of the plastic bags they'd come in. She held one up and ran her fingers along the curled letters stenciled into a red block on the front. Against assault, the text said in Arabic. Farida had designed the logo a couple of weeks ago in this same room. It has to be strong and simple, she'd said, her brow scrunched as her fingers moved on the mouse pad. There were 75 t-shirts for T to take to the intervention teams. As she packed them into a duffel bag, she wondered how many people would actually show up. She went into her bedroom and opened her closet. A blue post-it note that had been stuck to the closet door lost the last of its glue and fluttered to the ground. A note from Adam, buy light bulbs, exclamation mark, in his small, meticulous cursive. She liked the marks that were left by people and by the work that they did together. Her apartment was on the 11th floor of a building just a few, just a few blocks away from Tahrir Square, and for the past two years, the place had been totally open to the world that was changing outside. People worked in her living room, sometimes on her balcony. It had functioned as a meeting space for nascent political initiatives, a hideout, a refuge. On her fridge, on the walls, underneath her bed, were sketches that later became posters, maps of protest routes, drawings, and doodles made during conversations. There were t-shirts and scarves and hoodies belonging to various friends that were mixed up in her own wardrobe. People slept in her bed and cooked in her kitchen. Nahia kept a pair of pajama pants here. T took off her jeans and pulled on a pair of long johns, and on top of them, a blue one-piece swimsuit. A base layer of protection, hard to remove, impossible to rip. She pulled the straps over her shoulders, feeling the tightness around her chest. The restriction, normally uncomfortable, was now reassuring. She put a black tank top on over it, then her t-shirt. She pulled her jeans back on over the long john swimsuit combination. She planned to be with the so-called safety teams who take care of survivors once they had been pulled out of a mob. They were supposed to stand near the intervention teams, but to stay on the outside of the crowd, to not get pulled into the fighting. But T had learned to be ready just in case. Things changed quickly and she didn't want to find herself unprepared. Her worn out old Nikes would come off too easily. She reached in the back of her closet for a pair of heavy boots she hardly ever wore. Then she went to the mirror thinking about her hair. A ponytail would be too easy to pull, an obvious target. She could pin it up and tie a scarf around it, pirate style. Yes, that'll do. At night, she'd pull the hood of her hoodie on too. Cops are thugs. The unmistakable rhythmic sound of chanting voices suddenly filled her bedroom. It was earlier than usual. Friday prayers had not even begun. It sounded like a small group, perhaps too eager to wait for the day's activity to kick off. The sound moved past her on its way, she assumed, to Tahrir. It had been two years since mass protests broke out in 2011. Just like that, when they least expected it, when the stasis and corruption and pr police brutality underneath the veneer of slick neoliberal reforms had all but hollowed out any sense of imagination or political possibility, it was here. 
an actual revolutionary upheaval that had thrown Hosni Mubarak out of his 30-year presidency. In the two years of ongoing leaderless protest, Tahrir remained the symbolic heart of the revolution. It was here that the first marches headed on January 25th, and it was here that they returned three days later after a hundred police stations were burnt to the ground around the country, after the government's attempts to stop what had begun, including shutting down cell phone lines and the internet, did nothing to stop millions more from coming out into the street. Through each victory and each setback since, the feeling was that if Tahrir was lost, the whole dream of change would be lost with it. The way the revolution had become the center of T's life, had become her life, was matter of fact, inevitable. She looked at her outfit. Good enough. I'll stop there. Welcome to episode 92 of the Block Podcast. I'm Ursula Lindsay in Amman. My co-host is Marsha Links Quayley in Rabat. And reading just now from her new first book is our guest, uh, Yasmina Rifai, who we're so happy is joining us today. Um, and she was reading the opening pages of her book, Radius, A Story of Feminist Revolution, um, just coming out from Verso Books. Uh, and when this is the book we'll be discussing on today's episode. Um, you are describing there, Yasmin, someone getting ready uh, to go down into the street a couple years after the Egyptian revolution has started uh, or, or first broke out. Um, and the story you tell in this book, which is a story that has not been told anywhere else yet, is an, a very remarkable, very moving, very complicated story about the sexual violence um, that female protesters faced and the way that they organized to fight back against it. And I should perhaps say here to any of our listeners, just a warning that this episode will be discussing, um, as the book does, uh, sexual violence against women um, and some pretty traumatic uh, events and situations that they face. Um, so thank you so much for joining us, Yasmin. We're really happy to be talking to you about this. Thank you. It's really good to be talking to you guys. Yeah, and I just want to say that I believe today is actually publication day for, for Radius, is it not? It is, yes. So it should be. Um, it's publishing in the UK and the US today, so it should be in, in bookshops if you're in any of those places. Yes, yeah, so, well, I'm excited. The uh, pre-orders that I have set up to to go to friends will hopefully go in the mail today. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. And I actually, I did get a hard copy here in Amman, which was great. It was great to, to have a copy. Um, I definitely want it to be part of my library. And also you have, I don't know who designed the cover for your book, but it's a wonderful, evocative, clever cover um, that sort of situates uh, you right away in the space of the revolution somehow. Um so before we get into the the writing of the of the book, um, perhaps you could give listeners uh, a general overview of uh, the story that you are telling uh, in it. Sure. Yeah. Um, so so obviously the story takes place um, within the Egyptian Revolution and. Um, what was happening at the end of 2012, so October, November um, of 2012, um, so almost two years into the, you know, a sort of ongoing period of revolution, revolutionary protest and upheaval. 
we began to see um, a pattern of mob sexual attacks against women in in and around Tahrir Square. Um, and these kinds of violent attacks had happened before, um, but they were always isolated incidents, at least as far as, as people were aware. Um, but what was happening at the end of 2012 was um, that suddenly every night, multiple women were being surrounded by what could at first be a very small group of men who would begin to sort of, you know, take, separate them from whoever they were with and then, you know, inflict various levels of violence upon them. So from uh, leering, groping to stripping of clothes to beating and and much worse. Um, And then, part of a big part of the violence and a big part of the what was so horrifying about what was happening was that these what would start with a small group of men would would quite quickly grow into um quite a large crowd and these crowds were completely chaotic um and it was sort of very difficult to tell what was going on in them most of the time um you know, people were there joining in the violence, certainly, um, but also a lot of people were trying to help. A lot of people were just sort of trying to figure out what was going on. Others were, you know, picking phones out of people's pockets. Um, it was just total chaos. Um, but the fact was that that uh, women were being hurt worse and worse and more and more. And um, in response to this, Uh, a few different groups of people um, started organizing themselves into these sort of like ad hoc groups um, and going out and trying to intervene, like trying to sort of scout the protests and the square and step in if they saw something happening and try and pull women out um, to safety. Um, And after a few weeks of of this, it became clear that there was a need um, for the, these efforts to become more more organized. And so Operation Anti-Sexual Harassment and Assault, or um, Opantish for short, and the, the Arabic word for the group is Qawwa de Taharush, which is a bit more elegant um, than the, uh, and a bit punchier than the, the English name, and it means directly um, power against assault. Um, and so Opantish formed formally, I think, in, in early November of that year. Um, and so what had been these sort of small, you know, intervention squads um, came together under a group name with a sort of mission statement and an attempt to militantly organize themselves um, into intervention teams um, to pull women out of these attacks as they were happening and essentially also to ensure and fight for women's ability to be full participants in um, in the revolution, which was still ongoing. And um, there were, it's important to note that there were a couple of other groups that took this kind of work on um, in different styles and in different ways. Uh, the thing, the reason I'm telling the story of Opantish in this book is because I was a part of Opantish, but also the, the thing that was um, a little bit different about it is that Opantish um, identified itself as explicitly within the revolution, um, explicitly sort of, you know, a radical feminist group that was there um, to essentially 
try and do this very difficult and dangerous work, but also for the the larger political this, the larger political reason of ensuring, um, as I said, women's ability to continue to be in the center of things. Um, so yeah, so Radius is uh, is the story of Opatish um, and its sort of aftermath, I suppose. And and the woman that you describe, the activist you dis- who you describe in the opening pages of the book, she's getting ready to go down to participate in one of these interventions and all these preparations she's making, the way she's dressing with all these layers, the way she's making sure that her hair is up. This is because she's going to be physically entering these this very violent and, and, and chaotic crowd, basically, and putting herself at risk. Um, I just want to make clear to readers, you know, why it is that she's putting on long johns and a swimsuit and jeans and boots and tying her hair up and all of this. I think you, you, it, it's, it, it's a great place to start in terms of what people were, what precautions people were taking as they went out to do this incredibly brave thing to help others. Yes. I mean, it was, um, and this was, you know, a lot of people were hurt trying to, to help one another, basically, especially at the beginning. Um, a lot of women and men became um, became targets of attacks themselves, basically, in the, in the course of trying to, to, to penetrate these mobs to get to a woman who was being hurt at the middle, in the middle, the crowds could sometimes turn on, um, on the women trying to do this work. And, um, over time and what this, you know, these, these paragraphs I read, uh, are trying to show is, is the sort of, um, what we learned basically, um, in the course of doing this work about how to try and protect ourselves better. So the swimsuit thing was a huge thing. Um, and I can't remember who it was, who, who discovered it and started spreading the word. But I remember from very early on that wearing, wearing swimsuits, one piece swimsuits for women, um, was like, you know, just like having armor on because it was impossible to rip as T is thinking in that, uh, in that chapter. And, um, there was a lot you know, we learned a lot more about how to just navigate crowds of that size, how to, you know, um, try and connect with and deal with with survivors and their needs in these like really chaotic um, um, circumstances, how to sort of drive around Tahrir, you know, in the quickest possible way. There was there was a lot that we had to learn very, very quickly and in, in many ways very, very painfully and very messily. Um, but, you know, women like like T um, did it and many of them did it um, over and over again. Yeah, I, I, I mean, one of the things, of the many things that struck me of, of the moment uh, was how it had to be a woman being there at, at the spear tip going in to meet the other woman because there, there was so that it you know, I can't remember who described it as all the men are play acting around and only for the woman in the center is this real, you know, some of them are saying that they're helping her when really they're helping, you know, they're there to help the woman. They're shouting at the other men, but at the same time, they're, you know, grabbing her wallet, shoving their hands, um, inside her clothes um and that the you know the woman in the center has no idea who to trust 
uh, in this uh, among all of these men, which are there really honestly to help her and, and which are not. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was a big, you know, we realized that, um, as you said, as you say, women would, in many cases, only sort of calm down enough to connect with the person trying to help them. If that person was a woman, if they heard a woman's voice, saw a woman's face, um, and in some cases, that would take time um, to even realize that the person in front of them was a woman. Um, yeah. Now, as you said, the, the, this was a, 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 re- a group that was in full support of the revolution, uh, a feminist group um, who hoped both that the revolution would be successful and that part of that success would entail greater protection, greater rights, greater participation for women. Now, obviously, that's not the way things have turned out or presently are. And you've been working on this book for a really long time. You went back and interviewed your, your, your friends and your colleagues from this organization over the course of many years. As you were writing and rewriting this story, um, knowing it would uh, be read to a large extent by a Western audience, since it's in English, um, were you concerned about, did you have any trepidation about how it would be received? I mean, I know you did because in the book you addressed this a bit, um, as, you know, um, wanting to make sure that it's not just read as a story, another story about some, a form of defeat of the, of the revolution or of a form of like local, you know, religious or regional dysfunction. So, um, how did you address those concerns as you were, you know, making sure to also like tell the full story? Yeah. Um, I think, it, that concern was definitely present with me, especially in the in the early earlier years of writing, um, and when I wasn't quite sure about the form that the book would take ultimately. But the thing that I that always kind of regrounded me in the project was just sort of reminding myself that yes, this is a story about you know about trauma, and it contains you know a huge historical defeat that we are still living in the shadow of in many, many ways and living the repercussions of in many ways. And I think that's true, not just of Egypt, but of of the region and therefore, you know, of much of the rest of the planet um, in some ways. But um, but the thing that kept regrounding me was um, that this is also, this is a story of the fight back, right? And that's the thing that's the thing that also that makes it a story is that is not that this violence happened. I mean, this violence has always happened in some ways. And, you know, there are stories of, not that that would make it, you know, unimportant to tell, but what I wanted to tell was was that there were people in the face of it who managed to find a way to come together and fight back. And and also, you know, to fight back in this really sort of, um, in this way of, of, of using your body for someone else. And that, that is true, not just of, I mean, it is true most, of course, acutely of people who are on the ground in these intervention teams, but there were also, you know, there were many other parts of the organization that were doing a lot of work to support and sustain this. You know, there were people in the operations room, there were people in safe houses um, ready to receive uh, survivors. There were people sitting in getaway cars ready to drive people wherever they needed to go. This was, you know, 
um, because of the context of, of, of intervening in, in protest space and being this kind of like direct action emergency response group dealing with this violence. It was this kind of this very embodied work, I would say, um, for people in, in various roles. And I just, um, there was, yeah. No, I just absolutely, I, I couldn't, the story contains a, a lot of darkness, but it also contains a lot of light. I mean, I think it, one is incredibly moved by the level of personal risk that people were willing to take to, to, to help others who they did not know. Um, I mean, it's, it, it is, I think, um, heroic. I mean, you know, really, I don't think I could do something like that myself. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, it is also like a, um, I think an important sort of global, not global, but in, you know, um, human story. If, if we imagine, uh, as, as I do, and as you sort of, hin- you know, gestured towards that we're living in a moment of increasing global repression in probably most of the world, um, you know, it's an important s- story of, of fighting back, of organizing, and it is, it is itself, if you, you know, as you, you say, revolution is in a way, you know, it must happen inside and between people. So this, you know, the book is the story of a maybe feminist revolution, but the book is the feminine, you know, it's, it's a revolution between me and the book. It's a revolution between, between you and the book, between every reader and, and what happens in the communities as, as we read it and, and think about it and consider it and, and are changed by it. I just want to add on to 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 um, the point that Marsha was making, um, and to my earlier thought, which is that you know, um, so this is an example of a fight back from within um, within the revolution and a historical moment through the region, which has shaped. You know, it's not just that the sort of counter revolutionary crushing of the Arab uprisings was part of a, you know, what is indeed like a global, you know, ascendance of the right and of, you know, more, more repressive regimes from India to the US. Um, it's also shaped really many of the forces that are, that we are having to sort of, um, to work with and confront today and that are being dealt with into crises and being made into, in, into crises, including, you know, m- most, the most obvious one is the waves of migration, right? And so everything about, you know, the European and Western response to migrants fleeing Libya, Syria, you know, all of these countries where the crushing of these movements it continues to be to be very very real this is not a this is not a, a history that has gone that has gone away but also an important an important um point for me is that i think the story of opantish is really one of many sort of histories of particularly i think of collective organizing and collective action um, that happened within Egypt's revolutionary years um, that, you know, haven't been told for, for many, many reasons, you know, trauma, censorship, repression. Um, uh, but yeah, but it was, it was important for me to, to try and, uh, and tell this one. Yeah, it is hard to imagine this book being published or sold currently in, 
in Egypt. I'm curious to see what will happen. I think I think it it might be okay. I mean, um, you know, uh, all my Hamilton's novel, The City Always Wins, is sold there um, in bookshops. Uh, there is no Arabic translation yet. But there are many sort of uh, works of fiction, I suppose. Um, I don't know if maybe there's a difference there. There are many works of fiction that, um, you know, centralize the, the revolution, really, um, that are available. Um, Ahmed Aouni's uh, novel is sold. So so I, I think it might it might happen. Yeah. I mean, I just do. I do think that there has been more trouble with with non nonfiction and um, difficulties with publishers. But I certainly... Uh, hope that everyone in Cairo has a, has an opportunity to read it. I hope so. Um, I'm curious about when did you think of the title? Did was it was it your idea or where where did the it come from? Um, it came quite a bit late. Um, it was not my idea. It came out of a conversation that uh, Omar and I had. Um, during a drive from Cairo to Sahel. And I think it was maybe just as I was getting, we were getting ready to sort of submit the manuscript to editors. Um, so probably in the first year of, of COVID. And um, and yeah, and we knew, I mean, I had had a working title for a long time, um, which was uh, in, in each thing it's opposite. And I felt like that no longer fit. And uh, we had a conversation and, you know, it ended up being about, about circles and, um, and we landed on radius. And I think, I think uh, it felt right on several levels. So of course, first there's the direct sort of um, reference to the physical movement of these intervention groups, which were trying to basically fight their ways into the middle of a circular mob at the middle of which was a woman or several women. Um, so, you know, intervention teams trying to fight their way into the middle of the circle and then back out. Um, but then it also alludes to um, the ways that conversations around sexual violence and sexual assaults can often be circled off, circled away as, as though they're sort of separate from um, the rest of life and politics. Um, uh, there is something in it also about um, trying to connect outwards. Um, so, you know, radiating, trying to connect out from, um, I guess, from something that can feel quite, um, quite dark and, uh, and a little bit cornered. Um, but actually has connections to make um, to so many other so many other parts of of life. It it also made me think of of um, circles of trust in the sense that also the the activists, the people in the group, they're forming a a, a, a circle of some kind, a growing one. Like you talk about how the groups got hundreds of volunteers at one point. I mean that also there's there's an expansion outwards to the people who are concerned with this um, and, and the sort of need to, to, to form that. It made me think of 
people being inside or outside of of a line of a circle you know who who is considered to belong or not belong in the square in the protests in public space right um and then i do think when you talk about radiating that that um not only does the experience you go back and forward in time and 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 show how it's rippled through the lives of all the people who participated um but also you you make these lovely connections um to to personal experiences of your own or of others um that that aren't you know directly linked to that but you know uh, experiences as a teenager with one's family or with motherhood or, you know, of women who weren't even there, but then had a conversation about it with you years later. Um, and, and in that sense too, the, the story sort of, um, moves outward. Uh, and, uh, and we, and I think we all feel a a connection to it. Yeah. I mean, I think it also, there is something, I mean, circles of trust definitely re- resonates. Um, but also perhaps there is something in, in, in actually breaking a circle, like both accepting and breaking mm. circularity, I think, when it comes, when it comes to, um, to trauma and, and living, living with um, experiences of violence, experiences of fighting violence, experiences of having been a part of a revolution in in many forms um that so many people are dealing with and 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 it wasn't i think it my my editor um at verso who who pointed out that um you know the book is also sort sort of dealing with the circularity of trauma in some ways um and the fact that you know especially when it comes to 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 a subject like sexual violence which happens all over the world everywhere all the time every day um you sort of keep coming back to or through many of the same themes and feelings. Um, and, and so trying to somehow break out of that circularity, not to, not to sort of have any answers, um, but just to enable ourselves to sort of move, move onwards to sort of to, to accept it and, and look it in the eye, but then, but then to move on and say like, okay, well, what are we, what are we going to do now? Yeah, there's something um, about the reading experience, and and I'm sure times six thousand about the writing experience. Um, so you're you're experiencing the trauma of 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 all this as you're reading it. Uh, I I imagine that I don't know ninety five percent of women have experienced sexual assault and ninety nine percent sexual harassment at, at some point in their lives, and so you're experiencing the trauma of that's happening in the book and all your your own trauma and fear and you bring that with you and and yet um sort of the the non chronologicalness of the book the way it it does go circle and circle and circle in this way that in the end you can take flight you know sometimes if you um, move around something enough times and see it from different angles, you can leap off from there to something else. And I, I, I some, I'm, I'm a very, um, I'm a, I'm the kind of reader who has difficulty. I'm a, the kind of television watcher who puts her hands over her eyes. Most things like I cannot watch 
a lot of things. Me too. And, <laughs> me too. <laughs> me too. <laughs> and, and so I, you know, um, as I already told you, I mean, like there was a point at which, like, I, I was afraid I was going to vomit. <laughs> But I also found reading the book not not healing, not oh, triumphant, but somehow so necessary and smart. And and there were so many things I needed to know about life in it. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, of course, it's been you know as sort of the the main the main point is to tell you know this this sort of what I think is a useful um, history of this very like urgent and extraordinary thing that happened and that happened at, at, at you know, at great cost to, to many people. Um, I also, it was very important to me that this not just be, yeah, a book of, 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 of pain or, or, or trauma or a fixed sort of trauma. And I think that actually, I think that that happened um, because the book took took so long to write, um, and so it sort of was with me as you know I lived and changed and and moved you know away from Cairo for a few years. I was in New York, which is where I started the writing of this book, and then moving back to Cairo a few years later, which is where I finished it, and you know having children and sort of also doing this thing of like feeling the lens or presence let's say of the revolution sort of change for me you know to go from being a thing that was so the sort of central lens through which i saw and understood the world even you know for a couple of years i would say after the coup and 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 you know the sort of crushing defeat of of everything and of all of our hopes, um, it took a long time for me to to sort of stop seeing everything directly through that lens, and that doesn't mean that it's any. I mean, it's less present, I, I suppose, in a day to day felt way. But when I think about um, about the larger issues going on around me, be it here or certainly in Egypt, um, here in London, which I which I is where I'm talking to you from. Um, it's it's there. It's absolutely there, and it's certainly there. Um, you know, socially, socially as well. You you mentioned that one of the things that um, you became okay with writing this is not um, having an answer, and I think that's another thing um, that is is very valuable about the book. I think that that. W- you know, one sort of, it, one wants an answer, like how could this happen, you know, uh, or is, is there something we could have done to keep this from happening? Um, uh, is there anything that could have gone differently, uh, that, that could have been done differently? Um, but, but mostly like, why, 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 why did they do this? And, um, and I think the, I mean, my impression is that the, the fact that, there isn't a clear answer to the book. The book explores possibilities or ideas or suggestions around this, but it doesn't try to over-explain or have all the answers or, um, you know, provide some sort of like key to this uh, in that way. And um, this sort of long exploration of the experience itself. Um, 
ultimately there like there is something both i mean you know super interesting about it and like marcia says not exactly peaceful but sort of liberating like you you learned everything you could and you'll keep on probably and we all keep will will keep on by reading the book um but we don't have to have the the answer for why you know this was this was this was done to me to you to someone else you know yeah um i think probably part of that sort of posture of not not being too um focused on on finding or, or articulating answers is um is carried over from from the experience of Opantish itself, right? Like, so from being in this mobilization of people who are responding to this violence, we, we learned very quickly. And a lot of how our tactics were informed was they were informed by the knowledge that it would, it's almost impossible to sort of tell really who in a crowd of hundreds of people is directly trying to hurt and who is trying to help. And so you just have to become your own sort of force in some way um, to move forward. And, and, you know, um, one of the, one of the most powerful insights, um, not just into, uh, you know, this particular experience, but I think in a larger sense into people's um, um, capacity for violence or for harm and how that may be like shaped or reshaped, for me, certainly one of the one of the, the most powerful insights about that that I learned came from um, a, a person who's named Adam in the book, and who's Adam is one of um, one of four uh, main characters who who we sort of see the story of 2012 and 2013 through. Um, and Adam had this uh, this realization. Um, that uh, that people could be could actually be persuaded to to change their behavior mm. even within mm. within the, the mob as the fighting and the assaulting and the raping was happening that people could switch and 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 he figured out some ways to encourage that um, by 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 basically by talking to them as though as though this was a possibility and by almost sort of pretending that he just assumed, well, of course you were, you were here to help. Um, and, and this is also something that was experienced, you know, I mean, the, the, the uglier side of this is of course um, experienced by, by many women um, who were harassed or assaulted in the square by, you know, um, by men who were both, you know, I mean, T describes having someone um, whose hands are in her trousers as he's, pulling her away from a mob. So this sort of terrifying um, schism or this terrifying sort of duality that can be active in the same moment. Um, how can we sort of take hold of that and influence it and steer it? And that was, you know, what, what basically what Adam was trying to do. Sorry, I've now put these two people's experiences in relation to one another. Um, the book goes into it. Um, obviously in more in more detail but I do think that yeah um, something in in the 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 fact that Opantish as it was working was not concerned with identifying perpetrators or punishing them it was just saying this horrific thing is happening we are going to mobilize against it and to fight it and I think that that maybe 
some of that came 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 with me um as I was writing because it was you know what what does it matter action who it was who was doing this you know if I could prove that it was the state behind all this would we you know would we be able to like get any form of justice from them I, I don't think so I think what matters is that this happened it happened to people um and 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 then this effort to to fight it was real and was done by by individual people yeah this it's an extraordinary scene where you describe adam going in and i i believe it was the this man who had a belt and it could either be a good thing or a bad thing and that adam says you know says very directly to this person i know you're here to help and 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 that 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 you describe that this moment of pain crosses the person's face and I just wanted to say about the writing style. So there are some books about trauma and uh, apologies to all the Tahar Benjaloon fans, but like the, for instance, his Tasma Mart book, it's so like lyrical, like the grass is so green and everything is so red and it's so pretty. The writing is so pretty that it disturbs me <laughs> because it's about something horrible. Whereas here, the writing style was incredibly vivid like, for instance, suddenly we see that you've scratched off the label of your beer bottle, or we see this moment of pain cross this person's face, or we see, you say, describe somebody as having more electricity than other people. So it's, it's tremendously embodied, but it's never, never, somehow the prose never calls attention to itself. And I wanted to know how, to what extent you thought about the writing style before or as you were putting it together and, and and what kind of writing you wanted to do. Yeah, I think um, about the lyricism and, you know, beautiful writing about trauma. I think that that an awareness, as I was editing and rewriting, and, you know, this book has been through multiple drafts. Um, and I think that I didn't have a writing style in mind as I set out, but certainly as I rewrote and edited and knowing I think I, I already knew that I, you know, as a writer, I have a, a tendency towards, you know, trying to make beautiful sentences. I, I like reading beautiful sentences, and I think I probably try to do that in my writing, but I really did not want it to be um, there for its own sake or uh, distracting, you know. Um, so I think I just, yeah, um, was keen as I was editing it to 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 pare down anything um that seemed like it was uh, not serving basically the, the the story and the experiences of what happened and and that's the other side of this is is i think um you know this is not just my story right this is based on um about 20 interviews that i did with other um organizers and volunteers uh of Opantish. And I think that that awareness and that feeling of responsibility that I was directly using the stories that, that people had told me and had shared with me, the conversations we'd had um, to try and narrate um, also, yeah, informed the style very much. Um, yeah. And I also, so I, I, there, you use two quotes um, as epigraphs for part one that I, I'm still thinking about a lot, um, both Farida's and one by Han Kang from, from the White Book. 
And I actually, I'm going to just uh, read Farida's. Um, whatever it is that you write in this book, I'll always have a problem with it because I'll always be looking for the gaps between what you've written and what I remember. And there are so many points in, in the book. Truth is so important to the book. You know, you, you say at some point that you, you really want everything in the book to be true. Um, but, but there's also memory as, as a movable, constantly changing thing. And also, you know, the act of self-preservation as an important thing too. And I, I wondered how you were thinking, what, you know, why, why you started out with these epigraphs and how you thought about sort of the relationship between truth and, and personal memory and shared memory. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that the, the tension between truth and, and trying to tell a truthful account, um, of this collective experience, the tension between that and the constant reworking and shape-shifting of memory was something that, you know, was always there in the writing of this. And, and part of what, why I used, you know, these words that Farida told me sort of casually when we were hanging out on the bell, maybe not casually, but it wasn't actually part of an interview. It was um, mm. in a conversation on, on, on my balcony in 2018 about that she would always just look for the gaps um, and that she would never, you know, fully be like, okay with this book. And I found there was actually something liberating hearing that for me because it was like, yes, this is just, it's, you know, it's never going to match exactly what people remember or what the, what the, you know, what they don't remember. It's, it's all, and, and the, the difficulty, and I think often, you know, the struggle with accounting for and living with accounts of these kinds of traumatic experiences is, um, is, is living with this mismatched memory and, and being okay with it. Like, it's okay. Mm. We all remember it differently and different things stand out to us in different times as time goes on and our lives change. But that doesn't mean that there isn't truth in these different mismatched accounts, some of which are linked and shared and which will continue to have resonance, right? So somebody, my hope and what has been my hope as I sent, you know, copies of this final, of the final manuscript um, to different people whose, whose voices are in the book in different ways and others who were part of Opantish, but, but whose voices aren't like directly in the book. Um, is that it, you know, while there, that mismatch might be there, that it at least like feels true, that nothing feels untruthful. And, and, and I think that plays directly into your, your question about style, right? Is that right. like, I think right. you can mate, you can make art that is about something real and something painful and something historical and have it be have it be true and 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 artistic and and there's a line between you know the artistic and the artful right like that I think sometimes maybe I try I was trying to be um a little bit careful about like to be artful of course totally fine but like yeah I didn't want to be doing it for its own sake yeah I I mean so I've written one piece of memoir and it was about I, I realize now sexual assault in in high school and somebody I 
I hadn't seen since I was a teenager. I saw um, this summer in Berlin. And one of the th first things she said to me was that she read this piece. I don't know. I published in 2010 or something, which I didn't even remember anymore. And she said, it wasn't true. And uh, uh, I was so startled <laughs> by that. Like, I guess we had, I guess our, we, I, I feel it was true. <laughs> I, I didn't try and write anything untrue. Um, but that our memories of this moment from all these years ago had diverged somehow. But I think, yes, somehow both of them were actually probably true. Um, and I wanted to no, add, no, no. yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I think that this, this you know, um, this hits on a difficulty of like, just much of like life and society, right? Is like, I, I think there's like a, um, often an intolerance for allowing multiple truths to exist at the same time and, and actually being okay, okay with it. Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, another thing about how you, how you built this and how I, I, um, I was really admiring of the moments of where you break it as well. Like you say, this is the moment in, in reading an, a draft of this manuscript when Farida, um, had a, you know, had an anxiety attack and had to leave the, the train that she was on and her papers spilled everywhere. Um, it, it, I don't know. It, it somehow gave me permission to have an anxiety attack in that moment as well. Um, but you, you move, um, I, you, you move to sections near the end that are about childbirth, about nursing, about gender roles, about what it means to be a woman, to transition you know, um, transgender. And, and I wondered at what point did you decide you wanted those things to be part of this book as well? Um, I think I decided that when it, basically when I came back to, so I, I had, um, I had my son when I was, um, several years, several years into this project. And I tried very hard to finish the book before he was born. Um, I think many, many people try very hard to finish projects, certainly creative <laughs> projects, before the arrival of a, of a baby. And there are good reasons for that. But I, I, I didn't manage, really. Um, I mean, I had a draft, but it wasn't, it wasn't ready. Um, and so uh, as I did, you know, I think when he was about 10 months old, and I, I started trying to come back to writing the book, which was, which was extraordinarily difficult. Um, in many different ways. Uh, and I get into that in the book, but it, it was, it was clear. Yeah. Like basically as I tried to find my way back in that this was going to be part of the story. Um, and I think that there are deep and relevant connections um, between sexual violence and the violence that is done sexually to often to women's bodies or the stories that we hear most often are to women's bodies there are connections between that and um and the politics of 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 childbirth and of reproduction um and it's about you know bodily control and agency and choice and you know as we've just now seen in in the states you know that fight is is back back in the forefront 
um, with the Dobbs decision. Uh, but it's also about what happens when you when you have the baby and what your family and society expects will happen to you. Um, and yeah, and, and uh, it, it came very naturally to me to to work work those connections into into the book once I had 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 that experience. Um, yeah. I think there's some lovely passages those passages and 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 I know you say in the book that you're frustrated to not be able to finish at, on the deadline that you'd set for yourself um but I think the book gains from all the time that it took to write and um y- you're it feels like to me every line in the book feels necessary and considered and very honest and like it like you know really weighed and and really true and really like the maturation of a, of a lot um so i think all that time was worth it yeah definitely <laughs> thank you i also had um some great feedback through the years um, from close readers. Um, and yeah, I mean, it is my first book. And I think I knew something of the fact that, you know, writing is rewriting and, and all of this <laughs> that people say that you don't really, um, I don't know, I, 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 I now truly believe it. Um, and I, I hope that that, yeah, contributed to, um, to the effect that you described. Yeah. Yeah, it also feels so brave of, it feels like a project that was opened to other people along the way. Um, so in that sense, it feels, you know, obviously it's your book, but it felt like you made yourself open to listening to other people. I can just imagine, you know, write, you know, mo- uh, many books, most books, any most of what I write is sort of closed off in my own head. I produce it and then I send it to an editor maybe, and there's some whatever back and forth, but that this feels like many people were a, a presence and a part, a part of the creation of this. Yeah. I mean, that's, I guess, I don't know if it's just part of writing, um, uh, writing about something that, that really happened to that so many people were part of in, in reality, right? Like it's sort of a strange um, you're both isolated because it's it's you you and and the writing and you know that can only ever be you and the page in some in some ways but also in a sense you're never really alone um, and I think that opening it up um, in terms of sharing it with readers was certainly I mean it was always like a moment, you know, I, I, I would sort of be like desperate for, for someone else to just like come in and look at this thing and just tell me if it's working and making sense and just like think about it with me. Because, you know, I think I, a lot of, a lot of writers describe the sort of awful, the awful loneliness, you know, and, 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 and the, the uncertainty of like, am I, am I onto something or is this just, have I, have I actually in fact made now made this worse by the series, <laughs> series of decisions I've made in this draft? Um, so it was always a sort of moment of um, uh, sort of uh, fresh air and like rejuvenation and, and getting a slight like spring in my step um, whenever I would have, uh, 
have a you know have shared a draft with someone and, and gotten some notes back um yeah i mean there were a couple of times when you know the, the notes were were bad and that was that was sort of crushing <laughs> but uh but necessary <laughs> but even then then you have something to to move you forward right like it's it's good to have just something to react against sometimes i think when you get uh like you say like you feel stuck or you feel alone with the story absolutely yeah absolutely it's a bit of a sort of like oh i know what i want to, what what i know what to do here are these things i need to fix <laughs> you know right yeah. right um well, and we should say, and we'll put this in the show notes, but there's an excerpt of the book is up on Granta, right? Yes. Um, yep. Yeah. So we'll we'll link to that. And then you're about to you'll be you'll be traveling and doing some events uh, in the coming month. Yes. Um, so I am going to be in New York next week. Um, so I have I'll be doing an event at uh, McNally Jackson. Um, along with Molly Crabapple, um, who's a wonderful artist and writer, and Sarah Leonard, um, who is uh, who publishes Lux magazine, um, which is a socialist feminist, a socialist feminist glossy magazine, which is quite cool. Um, <laughs> and they will also be be running an excerpt um, in their in their next print issue. But um, I'll be in conversation with them on Monday night at McNally Jackson, and then. Um, doing an event at CUNY uh, on Tuesday. And um, I have an event in Philadelphia and in DC as well later next week. So you can find out about those um, on social media, I guess, um, if you want to look it up. Oh, great. We'll, we'll, put, we'll put them in the show notes also. We'll put, we'll put links to these things in the show notes. Um, and... Uh... And 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 really, everyone should uh, should uh, get a copy of this book. I mean, it's um, it's a it's a story that needed to be told. I can't imagine it being told better than it is in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, you know, it's a, it's a difficult story that you carry the reader through with your writing and with the way you've constructed it. And um, and it was, I mean, I, I think it's a it's a really remarkable book. And um, and I'm really happy that you came on to talk about it with us. And I hope it gets all the attention it deserves. Yes. Same from me. Thank you, guys. All right. Thank you so much for being here, Yasmin. And thanks to everybody for, for listening. Yeah. Great talking to you both. Thanks. Yes. Bye. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. You know, I wanted to tell you... I- I I did not I did not have a hard time reading the book. I could I mean it was I I could get through it. It wasn't like de, you know mm. debilitating to me, but you know mm. a, for a couple of nights after I read it, I went around locking all the doors in my house and like thinking about security really? and like worrying about oh, my backyard. Yeah. And then it, oh. and then at some point it hit me like why am I obsessing over this? And then I realized what it was. It was just this little percolation of and it's nothing. It's nothing. But, um, mm. but I, but I also do think it's not just like you said. It's not just a scary story or a sad story. It's it's something else entirely. It's it's an inspiring story too. And um, thank you. Yeah, I hope it, it manages to to do that. But uh, yeah, I mean, I wonder. Do you think it's also just 
what was triggered for you? I mean, how much of it is also just kind of being taken back to that time and that that atmosphere of like general insecurity, right? Yeah. Like tear gas and protests and sort you know, like I mean, you guys do a fair amount of reading that that deals with all that, I know, like on a on a weekly basis. But this was different because it's you're right. It is remembering a time and place where, where we actually were there. I and and then I started wondering mm. when did I stop going to the square? And then I remembered that I basically oh. stopped. I remember that I stopped going when this stuff started really happening a lot. And I, and I started thinking back and I can remember the last time I was in the square and felt oh, wow. totally safe and it was pre this. And then I realized I stopped going. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, I wow. gave birth, uh, February of 2011. So, um, but it, <laughs> it was generally frightening for many reasons. Cause I was afraid that somebody was going to, you know, not maliciously take the baby away, but just sort of, you know, want to carry him and then suddenly I would never see him again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm not crazy about crowds to begin with. I mean, but I know that I never went into the crowd again at a certain point. Mm. Like at a certain point, I started mm. to only be on the far away at oh, a safe distance, right. you know, whatever. It's, you know, yeah. And- this is yeah i mean i i wonder about maybe maybe it would have been nice to include this somehow in our conversation um i i think that there are so many of these quieter stories um some of which i heard some of which i heard at the time certainly so like as we were living them you know 2011 and onwards but then certainly also afterwards um when people would ask about the book or, or find out that I was working on this book um these stories of women um who either had something happen to them maybe not something as terrible as what was going on later on in 2012 and 2013 but you know who were groped or you know physically assaulted in some ways or just felt so deeply unsafe going to the square that they stopped going or became very fearful when they were there, but also felt like they couldn't talk about that, like they couldn't say it, like they couldn't say that it had happened to them out of fear of like seeming like they would be um, speaking against the revolution, like as if the revolution did not have space for that um for that reality well and also because it's like an admission of weakness like I'm not particularly proud that I did that I stopped going you know what I mean I'm a journalist and at a certain point I felt so unsafe and by the way we can include this because I didn't press stop on the recording yet (laughs) so we can go back I we can we can keep all of this you're right why did this blurting out of personal stuff come at the end I guess I'm still kind of like keeping it for like (laughs) this is between you and me you know this is how I felt and this is how, when I was scared. Yeah. And because yeah. it's embarrassing to be scared. Like, yeah, of course. Did you, how much, if I can ask you, um, how much did you feel like being, you know, in a, I mean, God, you, you lived in Cairo for so long, but here we go. Like, how long do you feel, how much do you feel like not being from Egypt also contributed to a feeling of, or fed that feeling? either of not being able to go or of, of not being able to say, not wanting to say. Oh, yeah, a little bit both, probably. I mean, because, of course, I was very support. We were, I mean, I was very support, like, you know, excited and supportive of the revolution. And 
protective of Egypt. Also, I'm talking to an outside audience, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And the first thing that everybody asks you is like, oh, it must be terrible to be a woman there. Right. You know, like that kind of stuff. And you say, yes, there's all this harassment and stuff, but I still like it. I like to live there. And, you know, so I was, I did feel like I had lived there so long. I think I felt... um, like again, embarrassed that it was happening, like a shame that it was happening because it's a place I love and and people, you know what I mean? It's and it was my home at the time. And so, but but I wasn't denying it was happening. I just think I had that feeling also. And I mean, I had been in the, you know, in the square as a as a visibly foreign person with a blonde ponytail for like you know, however long before this stuff happened. I probably contributed though a little bit to my sense that I would stand out a bit more, but I knew it was happening to everyone. Like it wasn't about being a foreigner. I knew it was happening to everyone. It had that wasn't the contrib. You know that wasn't the main mm-hmm. factor. Mm-hmm. But there was also mm-hmm. this sort of change that happened. You know when suddenly people started asking me anyway, or if I was a spy. I don't remember exactly when. You know, it was around the hidden hands period. Um, you know, in the beginning, I felt like everybody was welcome. Like it was a place for, it was a global movement and it was a place for everybody. Um, and then I didn't feel that way later. I think some of the tensions were always there from the very beginning. But what I felt was like, I just, people were busy. People were focused on their, on what they were doing. Like they weren't Mm -hmm. focused on you or your, you being different or anything like that. Like you just, I just felt not particularly noticed, you know, like, Mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. because, because, you know, collectively everyone was in the throes of something else. But there were things always a little bit. I mean, I don't think we should pretend that there was ever a moment where all of those tensions were not there. I mean, in the very early months of the revolution, I stood next to uh, like two Egyptians questioning each other about whether they were really Egyptian, (laughs) you know, like, and I was the foreigner standing there. Like there was always stuff about infiltrators and spies and this, you know, but I, I remember the last time I felt completely safe wandering around the square was Muhammad Mahmoud, which was like, you know, a very violent time, but there was no, I didn't, I felt like, street battle. yeah, but, but I remember being in Tahrir watching the people coming back from the sort of front line of that, but in the square itself, because like, I was just, you know, just not the focus, like mm. there was, there was much more important stuff going on and, and then that, that broke down at some point that that feeling of like we have a collective focus and a purpose that's elsewhere um and i i wonder if the number of women also dwindled and so you felt more like a minority oh yeah possibly um yeah i mean i think i think that the politics around all of this stuff comes with you I mean as you were saying you're a journalist writing for a western audience and you know you asked me about writing this book in English you know for non-Egyptian readers um, as well as Egyptian readers 
but um, but yeah, the politics around all that comes comes with us as we try and like write, right? And 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 as you think about how to write and how to publish and how to represent something and how to explain something, and it can can often be a sort of rabbit hole that ends in silence, right? <laughs> like mm-hmm. you're just kind of, well, you know, these stories are so easily weaponized and so you know put into these corners of like, you know, this defeated stories from this defeated part of the world and so on and so forth. And I think there's, yeah, there's a, it can be tough to, to sort of take that on. Um, But also, yeah, like kind of claim your, 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 your right to, to tell it or your need to, to tell it even in, even around all that. But I think also, you know, when people say, you know, if something is for a Western audience or it's in English, you know, they're imagining or the, the sort of sort of ima- the, the, the critique is like underbuilt with this idea that it's, it's an elite audience some, somehow, mm. which not to say that there aren't, you know, sort of uh, upper class white people you know, mm-hmm. power brokers who will read, who won't, you know, not to say that those people won't read the book, but, but that, you know, it actually that opens it up to a wide range of, of people um, who, who read in English, much as it, much as it does in, in Arabic. Yeah. No, that's true. I, yeah, we, ha- I mean, I think we have to be careful not to sort of, um, um, I don't know, not to follow the sort of, uh, the 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 prescribed sort of version of a reader that that sometimes it feels like the publishing industry is like has in mind in how it how it makes its decisions right and because that's just like not it's not real you know right what 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 does the reader the guy in cleveland think about this book like (laughs) i'm not worried that the guy in cleveland's reading it and also they're thinking about the readers like right now today this week this month but like you know this this book is a little piece of the history that's going to be read for a long time. I mean, I really did think about Arwasali's book when I was reading this. Like, these, you know, you, you don't know what readers it will reach in five, ten years, in other languages, in, in, in many places. Um, so, yeah, I think it's... You know, you don't know who will who will come to to find it, but we hope lots of people. Um, (laughs) (laughs) All right, okay. Well, I'm gonna say goodbye again. (laughs) (laughs) All right, it was great talking to you guys. Bye, guys. Bye. Yeah, thank you so much. You're welcome. Bye. Bye.